I want to invite you to open your Bibles, uh, if you have a Bible with you, to Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the back. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to take one of those as our gift to you. would love for you to, to have that and be able to follow along. Uh, if you're just joining us today, we've been walking through the letter to the Philippians for some time. This morning we're going to be looking at just two verses in Philippians 3. Uh, we're a little bit past the halfway mark. I want to begin this morning just with a, a brief story. This past November, a Berlin man found himself in proverbial hot water. Uh, the police in Bergheim near Cologne, Germany, uh, said that a 37-year-old man drove himself to his driving test. He pulled up in a friend's Opal uh, in front of a very astonished driver examiner. Uh, his, his reason, he shared with the police later on, was that he'd driven to his driving test because he wanted to make sure he wasn't late. His test was canceled. He didn't get his license, so being late really wasn't a factor. That, that could be labeled as a story about uh, missing the point. Uh, we could chuckle about that. It is amusing. This morning, uh, we are going to be, uh, I, I want to contend that it is easy for us today, uh, not when it comes to driving tests. I hope none of us would do that. But it's easy for us as well to miss the point. To miss the point when it comes to understanding the Christian life, to understanding uh, what lies at the very center of our Christian faith. We can miss the point. We can fail to grasp what is the ultimate goal of our faith. It is to that that Paul will speak this morning. Uh, in this text that we're studying this morning, Apostle Paul will speak directly to that. The ultimate goal of our Christian faith, the point of it all, is to know Christ. To know Christ. Now, as we turn to Philippians 3, 10 and 11, we're picking things up partway through uh, Paul's argument, if you will. Uh, he, we're just jumping back in. Um, we ended it at verse 9 last uh, last week, and we're going to continue on the same flow of, of thought. It, uh, for those of you who are just joining us today, or for a reminder for everyone else, let me just take a couple minutes to remind you of where we've been and bring you up to speed. Paul is writing to a church that he planted about 12 years ago. He is in Rome, in prison, writing to this church in Philippi, a Roman colony in Europe, the first church in Europe. Paul knows these believers. They have a deep friendship, a love for one another. He's writing knowing that there are two major issues, if you will, going on in this church, two major issues that he addresses. One of them is that internally, relationally, there is some tension. There is some relational strife in the church, and so he addresses that. Secondly, he knows that externally they are experiencing some opposition, some uh, persecution, some suffering. And so those two issues uh, drive his letter. Now, much of what Paul has talked about in the first half of the letter really focused on that, uh, the, the issue of internal relational strife, tension in the church. He has called them to unity. He's called them to oneness, to, to stand together in the one spirit, to strive together for the gospel. He's called them to oneness. He's called them to have the mindset of Christ, to put the interests of others ahead of their own interests. That has dominated the first half of the letter. 
Then beginning in chapter 3, where we came a couple weeks ago, Paul shifts to other matters. Uh, The further that uh, verse 1 begins with, actually, in the original, is finally. The reason the NRV says further is because we read finally and we think he's coming in for a landing. But he he doesn't mean finally as in, okay, now here are the last things I'm going to say. But finally, moving on to other things. Paul moves on and he, he... He doesn't say I'm wrapping up, but now for the rest of the things I want to talk about. And he shares in chapter 3 a warning and a reminder. He wants to remind them of the gospel. He's told them to stand together for the gospel. And he reminds them of that gospel that he has proclaimed to them. And he warns them of a a false gospel that threatens them. Remember the the beginning of chapter 3, if you were with us, it's almost kind of this whiplash experience. He begins saying, rejoice in the Lord And then a moment later in verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of flesh. And he's warning them of of Judaizers or this Judaizing way of thinking. Let me quickly explain that. Judaizers uh, was a group that he encountered in various churches throughout his ministry. And these were Jewish believers who contended that uh, Jesus alone, they wouldn't have said it this way, but Jesus alone, faith in Christ was insufficient. That you needed to believe in Jesus, but you also needed to observe Jewish boundary markers to really be identified, to be a part of God's people, particularly the boundary marker of circumcision if you were male. And Paul will have none of it. And if you were with us last week, you remember Paul went through his whole pedigree. He told his story autobiographically. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He just went through his whole pedigree, all that he had achieved, all that he had performed for God. And he declared to them that all of those things that he used to hold up as so important, so valuable, he said, now I see them as garbage for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and and to be found in Christ on the basis of righteousness that comes as a gift from God. He said, nothing I do contributes to my right standing with God. I simply come and put my faith in him and his righteousness is a pure gift. All of those externals. He counts as rubbish when it comes to getting right with God. Now we concluded last week our study in verse 9, which is not the end of Paul's reasoning. He continues here in these two verses, verses 10 and 11. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read, continuing Paul's argument. He says, verse 10, I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This obviously is closely tied as he continues his reasoning, and we'll uh, connect it to what's come before. I want to walk through this and thinking with you about four matters pertaining to uh, the Christian life, a life of faith. First, the goal, knowing Christ. Second, the means, resurrection power. Third, the reality, suffering, being conformed uh, to Christ's death. And fourth, the promise, future resurrection. So the goal, the means, the reality, and the promise. Let's begin with the goal. Paul says, I want to know Christ. There are many in our world today, many even in the church today, who I would contend A danger we all face is missing the point when it comes to Christianity. We we are in that danger. There are various ways that we can miss the point. One of the ways is to approach Christianity as thinking of it in terms of fire insurance is one way of putting it. This 
This was how I entered into the Christian faith. I grew up close to Niagara Falls. As a little boy, occasionally we would go there. You see the museums where daredevils went over the falls in barrels and canoes and all manner of silly things. I heard those stories. That was my regular nightmare as a kid. I'd wake up in a barrel on the brink of the falls. One particular night, I was probably around five, I woke up, I was, I was scared to die because I'd heard about hell. And so I thought, I, I, need to, I need to do something. And so I woke my mom, my dad was at work. He worked nights. Woke my mom, we prayed together. I, I accepted Jesus into my heart, was the lingo, right? I prayed and, and I, I was good. I was saved. I was safe. Now, I want to say this, there there is, not all is wrong in that view. There is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be avoided. But if that is the sum total of our understanding of Christian faith, that Christian faith is essentially this get out of jail free card, that it's this fire insurance so that one day when I die, I don't go to hell, our understanding is grossly inadequate. Another way we sometimes are tempted to think about Christian faith, understand it, is that Christian faith means, it's, it's a, a means, uh, sorry, Christian faith is, is a resource to get some, some good principles for life. God made us, and he's given us his word, and so we, we can go to his word, and we can discover good principles, and if we abide by those principles, then we can have the good life that we want. And to be sure, there's something right about that understanding. God has made us. He has given us word, his word. He, he knows us. He knows how our lives work. And so as we learn to obey, there's no guarantee things will all turn out right, but he certainly gives us good principles for how we're to live. We are to be conformed into his likeness. We are to be shaped by his word. But if we think of Christianity primarily as, hey, this is a way for me to get good principles to live a good life to get the life that I want, where, again, our understanding is grossly inadequate. Another way some are tempted to think about the Christian faith, and we see this a fair bit in our world, is that Christianity is a means to get the good stuff from God. It's viewing God as this cosmic vending machine, a genie in a bottle. If I do A and B, I'll get C from God. I want God's blessings. This is the whole health and wealth way of thinking about Christianity, that God wants you healthy, God wants you wealthy, God wants you happy, and so if you just do your part, you believe in him, you, you do whatever A, B, and C are for you, you'll get what you want from God, and he'll, he'll pour out his blessings upon you, and again, God is a good father, God wants to bless us, but the truth is, those blessings are not fundamentally or foremost uh, material blessings in this current age. I've encountered so many people who are devastated when they don't get these good things that they want from God. And it's, it's due, at least in part, to an inadequate understanding of, of the Christian faith. Each of these views, each of these approaches, understandings of the Christian faith have something that's true, but they are inadequate. And each of these three views share something in common with one another. Each one looks to Jesus for something that you want to get from Jesus. Escape from judgment, the good life, material blessings. Each of these views looks to Jesus for something you want from Jesus. 
but you, you, you want stuff from Jesus. You don't want Jesus. Paul says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Christ is his goal. Christ is the ultimate goal. Christ is the point. Knowing Christ. And I want to say this, not just knowing about Christ. We can read our Bibles. We can learn a lot about Jesus. We can memorize Scripture. We can know lots about Jesus without knowing Jesus, without having that intimate fellowship with Jesus. I was a little surprised when I began my studies years ago to discover that there are some biblical scholars who know God's Word really, really well in the original languages. and They know all kinds of stuff, far more than I will ever know. They know lots about Jesus and about Jesus' Word, but they don't believe in Jesus. They're not followers of Christ. That surprised me. Why would you be a biblical scholar if you don't believe this? But there are such people. And this isn't just knowing about Jesus. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus. This is speaking of an intimate relationship of fellowship with Jesus. I want to know Christ. In the text we looked at last week, Paul spoke about being found in Christ and how, how he spoke of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That that was far greater, of greater worth than anything else. He wants to know Christ. That is Paul's ultimate goal, and it should rightly be the goal. It's what he holds up for the Philippians. It's what he holds up, God holds up through here, his word for us, that, that we would know Christ, that that is the ultimate goal of the Christian faith, knowing Christ, loving Christ, living in intimate fellowship with Christ. Now, we can ask an important question at this point, and what exactly does that mean? What does it look like to know Christ now? Well, Paul goes on, and I would contend that he offers us some of the answer in what comes next in our text. He says, I want to know Christ. I'm going to ask the question, if we, we look at the text, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Here, here's one interpretive question we need to deal with. Is Paul saying three things, that he wants to know Christ, that he wants to know the power of the resurrection, and that he wants to know the participation of Christ's sufferings? I would contend it's not three things. He says, I want to know Christ. The other two statements give content to what it means to know Christ. To know Christ is to know the power of his resurrection and to know participation in his sufferings. Well, let's, let's walk through that. We'll start with the first of those two things. Second thing, I would say the means by which we live the Christian faith out, the, the way we live Christian life. Part of what Paul says is here in knowing Christ is knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is not merely this doctrinal assertion that we make, Christ rose from the dead, though it certainly is that. We proclaim that. We believe that. But, but it's more than that. Paul was confronted with the reality of Christ's resurrection in a radical way. Remember Paul, before he came to faith in Jesus, he was a faithful Jew, a faithful follower of Yahweh. He, he, he cared about obedience. He was zealous for God. And so when people began to worship Jesus, this man in Paul's estimation, as God, it was blasphemous. And Paul, in his great zeal, began to persecute the church. He was there giving his approval as people stoned Stephen to death. And in the book of Acts, we read that Paul, at one point, with letters from the high priest, was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, women and men, and bring them back to Jerusalem to do God knows what. And on the way... He encountered Jesus. He encountered the resurrected Jesus. And it, it changed his world. It changed everything for him. 
He encountered Jesus, he, the resurrected one, the one who had been dead. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, and last of all, he, Christ, appeared to me also. He encountered the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And, and that changed everything. Something that we should take note of. In, in Jewish understanding, their, their eschatological understanding, that is their understanding of last things, of end times, there were two things that were part of Jewish eschatological understanding, two things that would mark out the end. The, the end of history, their understanding is God wrapped things up. Two things, the outpouring of God's spirit and the resurrection of the dead. And, and so for Paul, he realizes that in Christ, both of those things have happened. Christ has been resurrected and God has poured out his spirit. In other words, for Paul and the early church, very early on, they realized that in Jesus, the end has come. The age of the future has broken into this present age. And it's happening differently than they expected. There's this overlap of the ages. This present age continues, but already the future age has broken in in the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of his spirit. The future has come. This is God's end times, if you will. So Paul realized these realities. Paul says in Ephesians, I pray that your eyes, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, he says three things, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and here's the third one, this is the key one for us this morning, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul and the early church came to understand that with the outpouring of God's spirit and the resurrection of Christ, the end had broken in, the future was present. Not fully, but it, it was invading the, the kingdom of God was invading. God was at work now in the present. The future had dawned. And, and here he says, I want you to know that the, the incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he describes that power this way in Ephesians. He says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. The same power that resurrected Christ is at work in those of us who believe. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of God that has broken into this world, the power of God that is at work in each of us who believe in Christ. The Christian life, a life of growing in obedience, a life of striving to follow after Christ faithfully, is not a life that you or I or anyone else can, can produce by our own strength. It is a life dependent upon the power of God, the power of the resurrection. And Paul recognizes that in Christ's resurrection, God's resurrection power has come. He wants us to know that power, that our lives are empowered, enabled to grow in obedience. This is power over sin, power over Satan, power over death, and I'll say more about that yet. This power, I want to know Christ, yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Christ at work in me through his spirit, this resurrection power, the same power that brought him back to life from death in us who believe. Yes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Third, the reality, the reality of suffering. Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, and we would love it if he just stopped right there, period. But he continues. And, and this next little bit, we may not like, 
I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why would Paul say that? Why does he want to participate in Christ's sufferings? Paul understands something about the age that he is living in, this overlap of the age where God's future age is broken into the present. He understands that those who follow Christ will suffer like Christ. In 2 Timothy, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the book of Acts, Luke says, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. And he's writing to believers. And remember, what are they experiencing? They're experiencing external opposition. They're experiencing suffering. And he's just warned them about this Judaizing way of thinking. Now, we don't know for sure, but it's entirely possible that that some in the church are are tempted to get circumcised, to, to follow these Jewish boundary markers. Judaism had legal standing in the Roman Empire. Christianity didn't. And remember, these Christians in Philippi, they're living in the midst of a a colony of Rome uh, amongst people who are terribly loyal, very pro-Rome. People who would say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Kyrios. And they, as followers of Christ, no longer say that. They know there's only one Lord, and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And so as they proclaim the name of Jesus and live faithfully as followers of Jesus, they are experiencing opposition and suffering. And so maybe if we just kind of get in line with Jewish boundary markers, we'll avoid that suffering. Maybe that's what's going on here. I suspect there's a good possibility that that's at least part of it. Paul asserts that knowing Christ includes, it means participating in his sufferings. After all, they and we who are in Christ, we follow a crucified Messiah. One who was put to death by the Roman Empire. As an insurrectionist, think of that. For those in Philippi loyal to Rome, these Christians are worshiping one that Rome killed as a would-be king. We follow crucified Messiah, Paul says. And so we too will suffer like Christ. Now our suffering will be different than Christ. Christ suffered for our sins. Through Christ's suffering, we are forgiven. Our suffering doesn't achieve that. But our suffering is, suffering is to be like Christ. Now let me just speak real quickly about suffering. There, there are, for our purposes this morning, this morning, two kinds of suffering. There is the suffering that we all experience, not only us as Christians, but everyone. Suffering that is part of our experience in this world because of sin, because the world is marred by human rebellion. And so we suffer in a variety of ways, whether it's cancer or car accidents. Those are, those are part of, of living in this fallen, broken world because of sin. Mine, yours, and, and everyone's. There's that kind of suffering. This is not, this is a different kind of suffering. This is suffering on behalf of Christ. This is suffering as we live for Christ, as we seek to advance the gospel, proclaiming the hope of Christ. Remember, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to stand together for the advance of the gospel, to stand as one in the face of opposition, proclaiming the hope that is in Christ. 
And as they do that, as they follow Jesus faithfully, as you and I follow Jesus faithfully, there will be suffering on behalf of Christ for the sake of the gospel. Paul continues, he says, I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Oh, Paul, becoming like him in his death? Does that mean becoming dead? Well, yes, we're called to lose our lives for Christ. That's not what Paul's getting at here. The Greek verb here comes from a root word that you might recognize, morphe, to morph, to be changed, transformed, conformed. Paul's point is that as we suffer on behalf of Christ, as we follow Christ, and suffer because of Christ and because of the gospel, because we follow a crucified Messiah, through that suffering, God will be conforming us into the likeness of Jesus. That even this suffering that is unpleasant, but when we suffer for the sake of Christ, when we suffer for the advance of the gospel, that suffering conforms us into women and men, young and old, who are, bear the likeness increasingly of Jesus. And remember, what has Paul been saying to the Philippians? He wants them to have the same mindset as Christ had. Well, what was Christ's mindset? Christ in glory humbled himself. He became human. He became a slave. He obeyed the Father even to death, death on a cross. And that's what he's been calling the Philippians to. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. And so as that happens, as God by his power, his resurrection power in us, leads us in obedience to lead Lives like that, we are conformed into the likeness of Christ. The Christian life is the cruciformed life. The Christian life is a life shaped by the cross. And so if we come to Christianity thinking, well, Christianity is so that someday when I die, I get to go to heaven... Or we come to Christianity thinking, if I just follow the principles of Christianity, then I'll get the good life that I want. Or if I just come to Christianity and do the, the requisite A, B, and C, then, then I'll get the material blessings from God that I want. We're missing the point. Christianity, the Christian life, is about knowing Christ. It is about being shaped by the cross of Christ. Knowing Him through His power at work in us and through His conforming work in us as we suffer for him and for the sake of the gospel. That leads us to the fourth thing, the promise. This is absolutely vital for us to grasp. Our text concludes with these words, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, we can read verse 11, and it almost can sound a little bit like Paul is insecure about his future, like he's really hoping to attain the resurrection from the dead. But, but we know that this is not a lack of confidence. Paul, just in the text we looked at last week, said that he's found in Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, found in Christ, not on the basis of his own performance or pedigree, but on the basis of righteousness that comes from God. He, he's not insecure about his future. He, he's just saying, here's how Peterson says it. I think this can be helpful in the message. He says, if there's any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, I want to I get in on this. I want to know Christ. I want to be a part of what Christ is doing. I want to be part of what is happen, happening through Christ. As I noted earlier, Paul knew that Christ's resurrection was 
Not just some doctrinal statement, but it was real. He had seen him. He'd encountered him on the road to Damascus. He knew. He knew this. He knew that death had been dealt a fatal blow. That, that death was losing its grip. And this is so important to realize. That Christ's resurrection, a number of places in Scripture is spoken of as, as a kind of first fruits. That means Christ's resurrection is just the beginning. Christ's resurrection is a sign of the inbreaking of the future, but it, is, it, it, it means there's more to come. There's more resurrection. Paul knows that. The power of the resurrection, the power in him, the power in all who believe, the power that raised Christ from the dead is in us and will raise us back to life too. And, and that's why Paul can rejoice in the midst of suffering. That's why he can call the Philippians to rejoice in the midst of suffering because their suffering will not get the last word. Death will not get the last word. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee. It is the promise that we who are in Christ will also be resurrected to glory. What they experience now in part, one day they will experience in fullness. One day they will stand They will stand in the glorious presence of Jesus, the one they know already, the one who loves them, the one through whom God's righteousness has been given to them. So it is with great courage, holy abandon that Paul and every one of us can throw ourselves into serving Christ now, knowing knowing that there is nothing that we need fear, that we can rejoice in all things, not because suffering is somehow something we look forward to, but we know that even in suffering, it won't get the last word. Death is losing its grip. We can be confident that God who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. And so Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not merely a matter of ethics or fire insurance or getting stuff from God. It's about getting God in Christ, about knowing Jesus. And so as long as we live in this world, during the overlap of the ages, we can be confident that already the future is broken in. That already as we seek to follow Christ, we, we live by the power of God. The power of the resurrection at work in us. And we suffer being conformed in the likeness of Christ, knowing that suffering and even death doesn't get the last word. That our resurrection is promised, that our future is secure. And so we can joyfully, confidently, with abandonment, pour out our lives for Jesus in the gospel. May it be our prayer. May each one of us be able to pray as Paul prayed, as Paul declares here. I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus. Amen.